where do people most commonly keep their pigs? Is it at eight and a half square feet per pig? No, more like seven and a half square feet per pig. Because when you make it to where they're just barely crowded, that's the greatest economic return for finishing barn. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like ZinPro, Essential Trace Minerals, Exceptional Performance, Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. My name is Marcio Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health and nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Dr. Joe McGlone, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Good. Appreciate uh, you being here today. I remember emailing you here several years ago. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but it was about um, some of your master's work. My master's work or a master's student of mine? Your man, 1981. That was my PhD work. Was it? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And was that the one with lithium? No, that was my master's. Okay, so when was 1979. I got, I got the year wrong. Okay, it was about lithium. And, yes. I, and I'll tell you this little story before we jump into some of your background for some of those folks that don't know you and, and getting some other cool areas. But I have a book here and I'll show you on the top. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Tools of Titans from Timothy Ferris. And, uh, and, and he a, has a chapter that he interviewed a doctor and, and they were talking about micro dosage of lithium for humans. And I don't know if you're familiar with that work. You know, I think there's actually, are you familiar with that work or no from the human side? Yes. Yeah, so for folks that are not familiar, there's some work. It's mostly observational studies from Texas, France, and Japan, and where they found where you have a little bit more uh, lithium in the water, just a tiny bit, like five or ten grams a, a day, uh, the rape and suicide rate went down. And again, it's observational, so it's association, not, not cause and effect. But as I was reading that, I was like, holy moly, uh, maybe there's something with uh, tail biting here. And then I go to Google Scholar, tail biting, lithium, <laughs> and then I found your master, right? And I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. So um, 
Yeah, maybe maybe if we can start there and then... Uh, <laughs> well, that is pretty close to the beginning. So, yeah, we can start there. <laughs> cool. Let's do that. Okay. Here's the, here's the story. I'm an undergraduate at Washington State University, and I'm working for a faculty member whose name is Keith Kelly. Keith uh, is known as an immunologist. He's retired now, but he was my master's advisor, and he... He said, he said, uh, you know, pig fighting is a big problem with pigs. And he saw this article where people that were taking lithium were less aggressive than people that were not taking lithium. So he said, maybe we could, you could figure out if you can use lithium in pigs and it'll reduce fighting. So yeah, I can find that out. But he had a whole series of studies with sows and, and, uh, and growing pigs. And basically, the bottom line is that in rats, if you give them lithium, they fight less also. But what we knew is that lithium was very commonly used as a tool to, to induce taste aversion. In other words, lithium, if you, pay, if you give a, a mouse lithium and a novel food, then they'll never eat that novel food again because they get nauseous from the lithium. Interesting. So lithium, in a dose-response way, in, the, in very low doses, it changes the neurochemistry of the brain. At higher levels, it makes the animal nauseous. And the question was, does lithium reduce aggression in pigs and rats because they're nauseous or because it has some effect on the brain? more directly and so we tried to leash in the area post did you have neuroanatomy in school if i did it's been 10 years <laughs> it's been 10 oh, years 10. Hey, hey guess what it's been longer for me i know right <laughs> anyway so there's a part of the part of the brain called the area postrema that sits on the on the back of the brain in the medulla and it senses toxins in the blood and if it senses a toxin it sends neuron to the vomiting center and the animal vomits. And so pigs are good vomiters. They will throw up easily, put them in a truck. The road movement will cause them to vomit, feed them anything that might make them nauseous, they'll throw up. Rats don't throw up. So rats and mice don't throw up. So what they do is they have a very extreme behavior called neophobia, where they are afraid of new things. And so they they will come to a new food. Let's say you put out a new rat poison and they'll go eat a tiny bit of it and they'll go away and they'll sit and wait. And if they get a little nauseous, they never eat that food again. Wow. But they won't throw it up. So whereas a pig, if it ate a bunch of lithium in food, it would they would eat it and they would throw it up. So what we did, I did a series of studies where we examined whether the reduction in aggression was due to um, the rats being nauseous. We first tried to do the surgery on pigs. I got the vets at the vet school at Washington State together, and we tried to lesion the area postrema in the pig, but it was difficult. Many of the pigs didn't survive because there's a big uh Sinus, venous sinus sits right over the area postrema in the pig, and the rat doesn't have that big sinus. 
So you can't get to the area post without the animal basically bleeding to death in the pig. But in the rat, you can't. So I became an expert in lesioning the area post of rats. And when you lesion the area post they don't feel sick when they have lithium. Okay. And so uh, they also don't fight. So the fighting is really because it makes them nauseous. We did another side study. So I'm, I'm sitting around talking. This is back in the day. In the 1970s, you could go to a faculty member's office. You could sit around and come up with an idea. And then I could go out in the farm and do that study that same day. I could start it. Mm-hmm, right. Today, you have to have animal care approval. You have to have funding. You have to have people. It wasn't like that back then. So he said to me, there's a big problem. This is the older faculty member, John Froseth. He said, there's a big problem with sows in that we, they eat too much. And we'd like to be able to feed them in a group housing system where they don't eat 20 pounds a day, but they only eat four or five pounds a day. Can you do that? He says to me. I said, yes, I can do that. I can titrate the lithium to have them eat whatever we want them to eat. The more lithium, the less they eat. And so we did a study with sows where I I first did a dose response and figured out how much lithium would I have to put in the feed to make them eat only four to five pounds a day. So these sows were on ad libitum feed and eating four to five pounds a day, but they're eating a high lithium diet. Right. And when they eat a high lithium diet like that, they drink a huge amount of water. Okay. And every, this was in group housing at the time, the pens were flooded with urine because they drank so much water and they urinated so much because they were eating this high salt level lithium. And then only 50% of them gave birth. 100% of the controls gave birth. Only 50% of the lithium sows gave birth. And the ones that did give birth had half as many pigs. And almost all of them died before weaning. Wow. So the title of the paper, which was my first paper in the 70s, is Lithium Toxicity in Pregnant Sows. Mm-hmm. You probably didn't run into that paper. I have it. I, I skimmed <laughs> it through. I don't know if I read every word in it, but I have it here in my file. I love it. So, so as you zoom out on this lithium thing, I remember having a conversation with you via email is that the challenge is, it does seem to, is that a fair statement? It does seem to calm the pigs. The problem is that the toxic, yeah. so the, the window between the effective and toxic level is so narrow. So that's one challenge. The other challenge we would have, we would need, um, is that a FDA approval, right? Yeah. So at the end, after my master's was submitted and the papers were published, my advisor got a letter from the FDA. And it said, you're not, I, you just need to know that you're not allowed to feed lithium to animals. It's not an approved drug for use in food animals. And so if you ever feed lithium to pigs, you can't market them pigs. It probably doesn't have enough therapeutic value to warrant going through the approval process. I, would you, okay, so tail biting today is, you know, is a, is a, yeah. is a common problem uh would you would you completely throw that lithium idea out of the window yeah yes i would 
Okay. Why is that? Well, for one thing, if the pork shows up at the, at the slaughter plant with lithium in it, at a detectable level, the farm will be in big trouble. Right. No, no. Let me step back. I'm, sh- I'm saying if we had, if we find a, a, a optimal dosage, but also got FDA approval, that's what I mean. After FDA oh, okay. approval, would you, and of course, maybe a major company can, can kind of chase it, um, you know, uh, the whole thing around it, but. Right. If we had FDA approval, would you still like play a little bit with the dosage or anything like that? Or no, you are like, nah, tough one. No, because it, the way it changes behavior the most is by making the animals a little bit nauseous. So if you get the animal a little bit nauseous, then they're going to also eat less food and they're going to grow slower. Performance, right? So people are not going to want to do that, um, even if you could solve the regulatory problem. Right. And, and are you, and again, being this curious guy that I am, I'm thinking, are we confident that there is no, like, I, I, I don't recall the PPMs that you used, 200, 400, I don't recall that. Yeah, they were very low. Well, we used all kinds of range, many levels. Many levels. Because uh, I just wonder, you know, is there that, is there, can we zoom in into that PPM and say, you know what, yeah. maybe, maybe 10? We, we did that. Okay. We did look at that. No, no luck. No. Yeah. Uh, that's a bummer because, boy, uh, so, that's... that's so it goes like this. Very low levels, no effect on aggressive behavior. Intermediate levels, yes, they fight less and they eat less. And higher levels, they fight less and they throw up. Mm-hmm. So okay. you're right at that toxic level. When you for it to be effective. Right. And you did some intraperitoneal injections and that's really where they throw up too, right? Yep. See, we wanted it. to see what's their stomach. Yeah, you did read it. That's yeah, good. I didn't see it. <laughs> it was not only the title. Um, awesome. Uh, as, as we talk about tail biting still and, and coming out of lithium now, um, you've done a lot of research with it, right? What's being, uh, what's, what's being your findings? Is there any recommendations today for producers um, on this arena of minimizing uh, aggressive behaviors? First of all, aggressive behavior is a function of the production system. Okay, so I think that people that have studied aggressive behavior in pigs are not approaching the problem correctly. The problem is that a production system that we designed without respect to animal behavior causes aggressive behavior in pigs. Now, let me tell you about some studies that we've done with outdoor pigs. You're familiar with outdoor pigs. I've, I've been on outdoor farms in Brazil, by the way, also. There's some nice ones there in yes. Santa Catarina. Yes, anyway, so if you take outdoor pigs from different sows, and you take those piglets and put them together in an indoor nursery, they don't fight. The fighting is not significantly different than zero. Wow. If you take pigs from indoor litters and you put them together, they fight a lot. It's a function of the production system. Let me ask you a question here. Stop. Let's stop there. Is it more related because the outdoors, they, they, they are more used to social interactions or no, yes. it's something else. Okay. No, no. 
that's the primary reason. They they learn social skills outdoors. Okay. The reason I ask you is because there's um, a production system in the Midwest right now um, playing with the idea very successfully of uh, opening up the the how can I explain this? Opening up the crates so the pigs can have this common yeah. right common they can uh, suck they can drink milk in any any of the sows. Yeah. So that seemed to help a little bit on the social. A little bit. Do you think that could help? Maybe a little bit on, on tail biting? A little bit. Okay. But not, it won't help with tail biting, no. Okay. It, it won't. It, we have done that those studies too, and that's that's only part of it. Part of it is the fact that piglets visit other litters, and they learn how to socialize. That's part of it. But also, they also learn how to explore wide area. You know, a lot of outdoor space to explore. And when you put them in, throughout that process, they develop social skills because, you know, it's not normal for pigs to fight. It's normal for pigs to play when they're young. It's normal for adult males to fight. But the rest of them, they don't fight that much. I mean, you look at feral pigs. We've studied feral pigs. We've never seen aggressive behavior in feral pigs. It doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen in an outdoor unit either. It, and it doesn't happen with outdoor pigs when they are put indoors. It's totally a function of the indoor environment that we've created without paying attention to the behavioral needs of the animals. Right. Is there, and of course, right, our, our business the, being a commodity, the margins are so thin. So yes. We would, it would be good to get into like some some practical aspect, uh, but also, do you think do you think there's a genetic component, right? And yes, that's the first question. Of course, there is. Yes, the heritability of aggressive behavior is about 0.2. so that's low, but not zero. And PIC, for example, took uh, a heritability lower than that in litter size and developed hyper-prolific animals, and sort of the French and the Danish people. So you could take a small heritability estimate, and you can make a big change. The problem is it's hard to just uh, measure, right? Uh, you need cameras, and you need uh, That's kind of the challenge as my as You I need time, yeah. And the other thing is there are correlations with aggressive behavior. So there's a correlation in the straight-up literature between... Um, aggressive behavior and feed intake. Genetic lines that eat more feed tend to be more aggressive. More aggressive, okay. And sows that are more active tend to have larger litters. So if you begin to select for animals that are calmer without changing anything else, you will get animals that grow slow, and have small litters. But they'll be calm. It's now, you can separate them. So I, I saw a talk by PIC recently. Craig Lewis gave. You know Craig? Yep, no Craig. He was a student yeah. of mine. Yeah, that's right. Now I connect the dots. I, I knew that. That was okay. Yeah. great guy. So uh, Craig... Uh, worked on husbandry problems when he was here. But he showed some data 
showing that PIC selected for litter size and it kept going up and birth weight went down. So then they began to select for increased litter size while also selecting for increased birth weight, and then they got them both to go up. That's an example of two traits that are linked. And if you don't pay attention to the second one, you're going to lose ground on birth weight as you select for increased litter size. It's the same with aggression. If you just selected for less aggressive animals, you would be selecting for animals with low feed intake. Right, but if you control what you want to control, it's going to improve in our direction. A little slower, but a little more balanced. Yes. So it's possible to do it, yes. The, the other thing is uh, the industry has not, does not consider aggressive behavior a performance problem. It's a behavioral problem, but when they have pigs that are fighting, there's a temporary reduction in weight gain, but it's not enough to cause a problem. Right, with the exception of some work I'm sure you're familiar on, if you do that um, for folks that like to sort pigs uh, after winning or like small, medium, and large by pen, that that is one that we've seen like one kilogram difference at the end of nursery. If you just keep them all uh, not sorted, they perform better because we've documented, Jamil Fassin has documented they fight, they take longer to get into feed intake, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I published that in the 80s also. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You've done so much. So as you look back in your career, Dr. McGregor, yeah. what, um, what do you think from your body of work was the one that you are most proud of as far as, uh, you know, I like, you know, these key things here so we can share with the audience as well. Well, um, my training was in neuroscience and behavior in an animal science program. So it's a, a very unusual sort of background. And when I started, animal welfare was not a thing. I mean, I knew about it, but really we were, we were looking to change behavior to improve performance, health, and welfare of the animal, not studying welfare directly. But then when animal welfare came out as an issue and there was funding for it, there was no funding for animal behavior. You try and get a grant funded just to study feeding behavior in pigs, which, you, you know, is economically important. Then nobody's going to give you money for that. But you, you talk about somehow improving animal welfare, you can get research money for that. Okay. So the availability of funding changed the emphasis of, sci- of the scientists away from production and health and into animal welfare, society issue animal welfare, sow housing, transportation, castration, stuff like that, um, that are really, this is an example of scientists trying to solve problems that the industry created when it developed in the absence of thinking about animal welfare, right? We wouldn't, like sows, Look at outdoor sows. Outdoor sows have a lot of room and they're social in social groups and the sows don't fight. But you take wean sows, put them in breeding crates for 35 days, get them pregnant, and then mix them and there's going to be a lot of fighting, right? That's a function of the production system. It's not a function. You're, you're sort of... Uh, 
not accommodating the biology of the animal. The way the, the way the pig works, the biology of the pig is that there's three or four sows that travel together with multiple generations of piglets and they don't fight and there's somebody in charge and every, everything goes okay until somebody shoots one of them. Right. <laughs> and so that's how the biology of the pig operates. It doesn't operate with 5,000 sows in a barn. That's not how, if they're a buffalo, it might work, but it doesn't work for pigs. They're too big. So we didn't think about the evolutionary biology of the pig when we designed modern production systems. We thought of how do you get a thousand pigs in this space and what kind of flooring supports manure management the best? Not what kind of flooring supports their feet health the best, but the manure management. What kind of ventilation system keeps the ammonia level below 10 parts per million? Not what kind of air environment does a feral pig or a wild pig live in that accommodates its biology? What is a good trade-off or where do you see our industry going here in the next several years when it comes to that, you know, um, the happy medium, right? That sweet spot. Yeah, there is no happy medium, I don't think. First of all, obviously, I, I, write, I write about this a lot, about the sustainability of the pig industry. The, the problem with a, a, a really very sustainable pig farm will have zero carbon footprint, will uh, produce animals very efficiently with a minimum amount of nutrients, will not cause pollution of the air, water, and soil. All of these things would be part of a sustainable system. The systems that are being built around the world are not this sustainable model. Now, sometimes they are elements. Usually when you do something that's sustainable, you get punished. I can give you some examples. There was a company called National Hog Farm. They started in Nebraska. Their next farm they built in Colorado uh, in northeastern Colorado and near Greeley, kind of. And National Hog Farm said they got sued so much in Nebraska. When they built the farm in Colorado, they put in an aerobic manure digestion system with the manure run through center pivots and it had absolutely no smell because they didn't want to get sued. But the neighbor was Philip Anschutz, who's a billionaire in Colorado, and he didn't want that pig farm there, no matter that it didn't smell. And he sued them relentlessly until they closed down. He sued them be in part because they smelled bad, but they didn't smell bad. But you, you put people in front of a jury, witnesses in front of a jury, and you say, does that pig farm smell? And the person, yeah, it smells. There's a bunch of pigs in there. There's thousands of pigs in there. The jury's going to believe you, even though it doesn't smell. Right? Yeah. It's very hard to win those kind of cases. Now, they have been won. But so that's an example of a good deed going punished. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished, right? I mean, they were punished for trying to 
create an environment that reduces the uh, odor. The farms in North Carolina, the outdoor farms, when uh, in 99, 2000, when Whole Foods was buying outdoor pigs and uh, the these North Carolina outdoor farms were selling into Whole Foods and the price dropped really rapidly. You were too young then to know this, but um, the price dropped and people went broke. It was a horrible time economically. And Whole Foods didn't save those sustainable pig farms. They just let them go out of business. They just bought the cheaper pork. They also were punished for mm -hmm. trying to do the right thing. So now when you look at where farms are being built now in Brazil, China, in Spain, what kind of farms are they? They're conventional concrete slats, metal fencing. So there's no economic driver to push sustainable technology right now. So it's not going to happen on its own. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything goes around incentives, right? Let me ask you about, um, you know, stock and density is a big driver of behavior, right? And also yes. feeder space, um, which is interesting because those go in the same direction. The welfare goes the same direction as the performance benefit, um, right? Less stock and density, they grow, they grow faster. Sometimes. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Right, right. I guess where you're going is like maybe maybe if you increase, um, there's a like when you when you um, you have less pigs per pan, maybe there's a little more wastage. So maybe feed efficiency is not gonna get good. I can I can see that, right? But but just in general, I'm just thinking if there's anything that goes in a general direction as as would uh, welfare go, you know. So for example, something I think uh, many people are working right now is have better feeder space per pig. Less pigs per hole, you know. So, do you think that's somewhat of a maybe not not going to be the silver bullet? But do you think that that will help? Well, yes. Let's talk about space first of all. If you give pigs a whole lot of space, they grow at a certain rate, whatever that rate is, and you make the space smaller and smaller, and you finally get to a point where it's so little space that they begin to eat less and grow slower. Okay. For, for a 270 pound pig, that's around eight square feet per pig, between eight and nine, really. In that, and it depends on the genetic line and it depends on the temperature and a few, a bunch of other stuff. But just generally, as you get to that sweet spot, let's call it, where performance goes down, you then back off of that. And now you have the highest level of weight gain that you can have. And if you add space to that, there's no incre no further increase in weight gain. Right. One good example for folks is, uh, you know, if you give a, a, a bedroom worth of space per pig now and you give the whole football field, I mean, it's not going to change anything. No, but, it's not. Yeah. Right. So it's, and it's inefficient, obviously. It's inefficient to give space that's not being utilized. So there's an example of less space hurts the producer and the pig and adequate space is fine and more space is not, not beneficial. Now the question is where do people in that sweet spot range, where do people most commonly keep their pigs? Is it at eight and a half square feet per pig? No, 
more like seven and a half square feet per pig. Because when you make it to where they're just barely crowded, that's the greatest economic return for a finishing barn. Right. If you look at total gro growth goes a little down, but the total pounds produced yes. produce yes. goes up. So it pays to crowd pigs. Right. And almost everybody that has large systems understands this and they don't want to crowd them. And, and really factors beyond their control are what determines the stocking density. If they happen to wean 12 and a half pigs instead of 11 and a half pigs, they're going to have, they're going to be short on finishing space. Right. And if they happen to wean 10 pigs per litter instead of 11 and a half, their target, they're going to have open space and they're not going to be able to do anything with it. Right. And I think that's where my feeder space comment came, right? Because you could have a little higher, um, higher stock and answer, like you said, but if you have one more feeder hole or whatever, that's a little bit of a help, right? Well, people have done those studies. Uh, not, not me, other people uh, where, okay, let's say, you have 10 pigs and two feeder holes and everything's fine. If you have one feeder hole, they're going to they're going to eat less and they're going to grow slower. If you have three feeder holes, they're not going to eat, eat more. It's not going to help. It's just like space. Giving right, right. extra extra feeder space doesn't help anything. Well, I think is I think our analogy with the, the the space it makes total sense. I think for today's where most producers are today, I think we have good data to say that if you if you give a little more feeder space is good. If you go crazy, I agree, right? I agree with you. Right. But if you give a little more, there's still some room. But again, uh, that's one that that I think may makes a little more sense than than stockiness because you know you're investing on this feeder that hopefully is going to last a good amount of time. But you still get that you still get that throughput uh, through the barn. I, I think you're you're dealing with relatively small numbers and short time periods because normally you have a, a building with 1,200 pigs in it, and when the first before the first cut is made, the pigs are crowded in that barn. After that first cut is made, they're never crowded again because you've taken out a few hundred pigs and you can spread them out and there's it's really just a temporary problem the space problem and if you're looking at how you behave how you perform relative to your competitors you sure don't want to put yourself at a disadvantage by not operating pretty close to that sweet spot interesting now i i will say that if you were going to determine the feeder space requirement of the pig that it would be different for different genetic lines of pigs Some pigs eat more aggressively than others. Some pigs tail bite while the pigs are eating. Very common among barrows to tail bite more than gilts. And if you have a pen of barrows that is maybe slightly more crowded and uh, of a certain genetic line, then they're going to be more likely to bite the tail of a pig. Now they're looking at the feeder and all they see is the butt of a pig sticking out there and they're hungry. So they start chewing on the tail because they can't get to the feeder. So that is unique to certain genetic lines, certain environments and certain situations. We know the tail biting is worse in the summer when it's hot 
The pigs are irritable. We know that barrows tell by it more than gilts. Barrows have a lot of problems, you know. Barrow is a troubled animal. Is that right? Yeah, oh yeah. Maternal barrows I, are worse, right? It's been always. Maternal barrows seem to be, at least from anecdotal evidence, some of the maternal, so the, the guilt developments, uh, brothers seem to be just, we've, we've seen that, but I don't, I don't have any hard data on that. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't observed that, but I, in the case of the barrow, you know, barrows have a higher mortality than gilts on average. They also have a higher mortality during transport than gilts. Okay. They also have higher rates of ulcer in their stomach. Because they worry a lot. You know what they're worried about? No. Getting enough to eat. Because they eat a lot. Because they have lost their testicles. And for mammals who l lower the testosterone level later in life, their feed intake goes up. It's something you need to look out for later in life when you're an older man. <laughs> feed intake goes up. Yeah. It goes up, and so the barrow's feed intake goes up because he doesn't have testicles, and he's always hungry and always a little bit stressed. So it's not good to be a barrow. Right. Uh, you mentioned a few things that are helpful um, to minimize uh, tail biting, which we all know it's a multifactorial type of situation, yep. right? Um the other one that seemed to be, I've seen some good data, is the consistency of the tail docking, right? Um, just being consistent in the size. What's your no. thoughts there? No, I don't think that makes any difference. No? I've, I've seen a data set on that. Um, I mean, I, it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, we did a study where we left the tails twice as long and half as long. It didn't make any difference. But were any of the treatments in a commercial type of um, size or no? Well, our no is the basic answer. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. No, but I mean, we have a commercial finishing barn. It's got concrete slats and metal fencing, but it's 10, 10 pigs per pen, not 25 or 50. Uh, but it's hog slat, slats, and I mean, it, the university heard it just like a commercial farm. It's just 600 pigs, not 1,200 or 2,400. Any other things producers can do to, to, to minimize tail biting before we move to the next, next topic here? Well, I think the, the only treatment that is effective reliably is to give them some kind of material to root and chew. So even just a handful of straw in the pen but you have to do it like twice a day when they're tail biting. Okay. And when, when they're tail biting. Yes. When it starts, you okay. put some forage in there. It could be soil. It could be hay. It could be straw, whatever that they'll chew on. That will reduce the fighting. The other thing, the other real cause in my investigations of tail biting over the years, one of the biggest causes is out of feed events. So you go into these farms and this one part of the barn, the feeder's not working right. The feed system's not working right. And there are hours and days where the pigs in certain pens are out of feed. And that will bring out tail biting quicker than anything else. 
That makes sense. So that is something to look out for right away. But when people have studied things like ammonia and space, floor space and feeder space, there's really not a big relationship. And the other thing is it's subject to random changes. So, for example, you go out in the farm, finishing barn, today everything's fine. Tomorrow they break out with tail biting. It's a big problem. Uh, you go out and they're tail biting. They call you out. You fly there from Texas all the way to Canada and you get there and the next day it all stops. We don't know why. You know, it just has that, it has that nature that it turns on and off on its own will for reasons we don't understand. Now, if you were to take any kind of feed therapy, let's say that you said, all right, Mr. Pork Producer, I've got this special diet I, that stops tail biting. You could put that in a bunch of farms, and in some of the farms it will work because it was going to stop anyway. Right, right. You're, you're saying more like, like anything else in pig production, right? Don't, don't be fooled by, uh, if it's not a randomized study, be very careful, right? That's kind Multiple of, studies, really. Multiple studies, yes. We have one that we were able to document. We, uh, 2,000 pigs uh, randomized in Canada, seven energy and fiber level treatments. I say energy and fiber because, you know, they go along uh, hand in hand. And, um, and uh, when we were more like uh, more than 17% NDF in the diet, uh, double or triple the amount of vices. So, so that was one. And I, uh, they were so, hungry. Yeah, just not enough, right? That voluntary feed intake uh, was just not sad. sad uh, you know, I, I've had this conversation with activists. They say, why don't you just put high fiber in the diet of sows? And then you won't have this problem with stereotype behavior and, you know, the sows being bored. And they'll, I said, well, do you really think that if a sow's on a high fiber diet that she's not hungry? You know, it's possible to be hungry, to feel hungry while your stomach is full. Just ask anybody that's been on a diet, <laughs> right. you know, and the sows are not feeling full when they're on a high fiber diet. Are you a if you had if it was not for the economics, which is a big driver of uh, yeah. ingredient costs, would you be a proponent of the the fiber? Not necessarily, no. and that's because of what you just said, or something. Else? Well, it's not just what I just said because there's other problems. For example, when you put all that fiber in one end of the sow, most of it's going to come out the other end, and what are you going to do with all that? Right. Yeah. Manure. Fiber. Yeah. You're creating. You're creating an environmental hazard when you do that. And I have said repeatedly, including to my European colleagues, there's no point in solving animal welfare by creating an environmental problem or a food safety problem or a human health and welfare problem or an animal health problem. Yeah, I mean, a good analogy to that, uh, Dr. McGlone, that I like to say is uh, reduce the antibiotic, well, pigs raised without antibiotic that increases mortality so that is also paradoxical uh, just like you said now this this other analogy well we i teach swine production here at texas tech this semester i had 69 senior animal science students it's one of the largest swine production classes in the country actually 
and they uh, we as part of this we did a study. They they found a litter. They weaned the litter. They put them in a trial in the nursery. We had no antibiotic and we had Tylen, and they fed them for four weeks. And at the end of four weeks, they weighed them and they wrote a report and they said, "Did the antibiotic work or not?" What do you th- we have a high health herd here. Right. We have no PERS, no PED. We have no major diseases. Mm-hmm. Our mortality in that nursery study was zero. Mm-hmm. So what do you think happened with the antibiotic in the feed? Uh, for nursery, I mean, historically, uh, might improve for nursery not finishing, might improve a few percentage in feed efficiency and growth, but depends on the antibiotic again. Well, it was not different. And the antibiotic treatment actually was lower than the control okay. in terms of weight gain and feed. I mean, they were equal. Right. But luckily for the demonstration, the controls were a little better than the Thailand. Because okay. if it would have been the other way around, if the Thailand would have been a little bit better, then everybody would have said, well, if we'd had a bigger sample size or more. But no, it, there's no reason for antibiotics to work in a high health herd. Right, right. And I'm, there's a meta-analysis from Dr. Steve Dritz from 2002, and I mean, he, 10 years ago, and he documented, yeah, that was on, on his, was more like comor- uh, commercial type settings, but also finishing was clear, n- n- no benefit. Nursery, there, there was these numbers I just said, but but like you said, on high health, man, high health, no need, yeah. So the other thing that causes tail biting is health problems. One time we did the study on environmental enrichment and we, we were PERS negative in the herd and one of the other faculty members brought in some pigs that had PERS that we didn't know. And so PERS broke out in our finishing barn for the first time in the mid-1990s. And we got PERS just all, all of a sudden. And it start, the first thing we noticed was an increase in tail biting. And after we depopulated and got new healthy pigs, there was no tail biting anymore. Any idea why? And also, is there any other evidence uh, in the literature? I haven't looked lately, to be honest. Uh, We published our paper saying that when PERS arrived, tail biting started. Like a case study. Why, Why do you think? I think they feel bad. They feel sick. The same thing with circle virus. I was investigating a uh, herd that had tail biting problems and uh, when circle virus was kind of new. And I said, let's check them for circle virus because they don't have PERS. We'd already checked them. There's something else making these pigs feel bad. No matter what the virus is, sometimes bacteria, if it makes them feel bad, they're going to start tail biting. Interesting. Dr. McGlone, I have a few things I want to cover here with you, get yeah. your insights. Uh, and uh, I want to do like a rapid fire. So I, I, I tried to come up with like 10, 15 things, I guess, uh, through my mind. But sure, go right ahead. What is uh, nutrition and tail body? We mentioned fiber. Anything else uh, you've seen data? I mean, people talk about salt, but I haven't found any data. There's a paper from the 70s uh, with magnesium oxide in the diet reducing tail biting. Okay. I mean, it was from Purdue and they found it didn't reduce it. Oh, it didn't reduce. Okay. Because people talk about it uh, and some folks that I know, they are 
and it, their anecdotal evidence, they kind of believe it. But again, no, no hardcore data. Well, but the Magox does make the animals a little calmer. Okay. It does reduce the excitability of the pigs. Okay. But so it might work in some situations, but probably not. Okay. Another one I want to get your insights. I mean, if you're sitting on an airplane with a consumer and they're like, why, you know, uh, a sow that is on a crate versus a pen, what's your take there, right? Because cortisol goes up when they're in a pen. So what's your take there? It, it only goes up in the pen when they're fighting in the beginning. Then, it, then it's not different. Is that right? Yeah, I published some summaries of this. If you look at the cortisol levels, the only environment that has elevated cortisol among sow housing systems is the tether. But take the tether out, crate, pen, it's the same. Okay. So cortisol is not elevated. The only real measurable, observable effect of being in the crate is the stereotype barbiting. Okay. That's it. That's the only, everything else is, and we have studied that extensively and uh, we had some very controlled studies where we had sows in crates inside a building, in crates on a pasture, in crates in a building with straw, in pasture with no straw or straw or big, all kinds of things. And what we found is that there's a behavior called, that I call oral nasal facial behaviors, ONF. Oral nasal facial is anything the sow does with her mouth towards any material, whether it's a fencing material or bedding or food or water or whatever. Okay. The total amount that they spend doing this a day is suppressed in a crate environment. It's not increased. So if you look at the, the number of mouth openings and closing, for an outdoor sow versus a crated indoor sow, the outdoor sow shows a lot more of this behavior. And if you give the indoor sow material to manipulate, like straw or soil, they'll also show more of this behavior. So the behavior is triggered by environmental substrate, whether it's a piece of straw or a bar or whatever. And so our concept is that this behavior is bad because they show it in crates, but they in fact show more of it in other environments, like outdoors or in pens with bedding. So the problem is they're not showing enough stereotype behavior to satisfy their desire. Interesting. I mean, just, just think about the feral pig. They're eating a very low-quality diet. They're eating the roots of plants and grass and things that are not very digestible for them. So they spend a tremendous amount of time chewing and rooting. Mm -hmm. That's the biology of the pig. It's me, normal behavior. It's not abnormal behavior. Normal. Let me ask you on um, the firing crates, right? The open firing crates. What's your insights there? Well, the first time I published about those was 1985. And we showed that they're equal or better to a conventional firing crate. But there's some data showing increased prion mortality. Is that a fair statement on recent data or not? 
There's been maybe more than 100 papers on farrowing environments and pre-weaning mortality. And most of them show that the crate saves baby pig compared to a pen. Most of them. But not all of them. There are several pens that have the same pre-weaning mortality or better than a crate. One is the Compart turnaround crate. One is the crate where they open the side after three days. One is a sloped fairing pen where the floor is sloped. So the piglets stay at the bottom and the sows, the feeders at the top. They just go up there to eat. And there may be more. Uh, the Werribee pen that, that Greg Cronin just developed in Australia changed many of the features of the fairing pen. But all of the fairing pens that support low pre-weaning mortality use more square feet than a regular fairing crate. So a regular fairing crate is five by seven. And these will be five by 10 or seven by nine or, you know, they're, they're more square feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. There's a few recent folks uh, doing a six by eight, and I think North Carolina, uh, Mark Nauer documented an a, a improvement in pre mortality, just a regular crate uh, for the sow, but a little bigger for the pigs, and that was interesting. Now we have more pigs than 10 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, I imagine. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, there are solutions to the fairing crate problem. There are not solutions to the gestation crate problem. It's kind of weird in my mind. So uh, for the farrowing crate, if you want to have a farrowing accommodation that the sow can turn around in, there are at least four different systems that have been published that are equal to the okay. to the crate. And if you look in the old pork industry handbook, PIH, there's a uh, I wrote about it, and the four papers and the data that support them are all in that in that report. And people keep reinventing the same thing. I mean, people. I saw a paper this year that was the same treatments that we had in 1985, and they found the same effect. The pen was fine. Now, gestation crate, that's a more of a problem because the performance is equal for the sow. The only real difference is the behavior, and we don't have the excuse that it saves baby pigs. So for farin crate, and I've talked to people in leadership in the industry about this. You know, look, you, you can't keep saying this. They, well, we have to use a farin crate because it saves baby pigs. Well, I just told you there are four systems that have low pre-weaning mortality that are pens for farrowing. But there's no facility, there's no gestation environment that's been shown to be as good as the crate overall. Okay, the crate has an economic advantage because it takes up less gestation crate, less space. It has some animal welfare positives in terms of the sows not fighting after you take them out of the crate. Husbandry, so that you can identify them a little easier. Yeah, so all of those positives, and there's no compelling reason to put them in the crate like there is with the fairing area. So we can't say, well, it saves baby pigs. It doesn't save baby pigs. So 
so I just, uh, just so it's clear in my mind here, I know we talked about pros and cons. If you look at gestation, group housing and, and individually housed, you are in favor of group housed or not necessarily. I just want to make that clear in my mind here because I know we talked. No, I don't think it makes any difference. Okay. Got it. In yeah. terms of the welfare of the animals. That's very good now, to know. That's been my. I will tell you that sows, if you give sows 20 square feet and you put 10 sows in the pen, that's not a very good welfare. That's not a very welfare positive environment for the sows. Right. If it's group housed and you have 80 females per electronic sow feeding and they, they have 10 minutes a day each to eat. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, that's, that's kind of what you mean. Right. And also there's no the gestation crate. You can't get past the negative. You look at the sow in a crate, no matter what the data says, the public is not going to buy that. That's what Temple says all the time, of course. You must know Temple Grandin. Yeah, I know. I've heard. Well, anyway, so it, the gestation crate is more of a problem. But here's the thing. In Europe, they're building new farms with gestation pens. But they're not building as many farms as they are in Brazil and China and Asia, Southeast Asia. And what kind of housing systems are they putting in Southeast Asia and in Asia? Do you know? For sows? Uh, I don't know. Gestation crates. Though all those new farms, they're just full of gestation crates. Right. Some of them uh, that I've seen uh, here in the West that, that would be putting uh, gestation crates, at least they are thinking on a way that could be easily um, heterofitted later. Yes. Well, you know, you have to, it depends on where you live. If you live in California, you can't put in a gestation crate. Right. Yeah. So what are you going to do about building a pig farm in California? You're not going to do it. You're going to put right. it somewhere else. Right, right. That tells you something about the sustainability of the industry, doesn't it? If you're going to build a pig farm and not put it where the people are, there has to be a pretty good reason to put it in Iowa. Well, the grains, right? Yeah, but it's not just that. I mean, when Farmer John was built in L.A., there were pig farms all around there. But then real estate became more expensive and pigs came from Arizona and then they came from Utah and, you know, f further away, further and further away. I, I think the economic and society pressures on the producer are completely different in Iowa than they are in California. Right. And they're completely different in Germany than they are in Italy. Because in Italy, animal welfare doesn't come up very much, but it comes up in Germany. If you could have uh, something written a billboard around the globe that everyone could read it, but also <laughs> maybe since we're on this topic that all pig producers could read it, uh, what would you say? Probably not enough space. <laughs> a billboard. I want to know. Short, short and sweet. What would you say? I'm not really sure. I might have more than one thing that I might say. Like, the first criteria for a sustainable production system is farm economics. That might be one thing. Okay. I mean, you can have good intentions and you have local forces that change your decisions. Like, if you're in Ohio, you wouldn't put in a gestation crate now because it's not legal. So in Ohio, you're looking for alternatives 
to the gestation crate that's economical for you. But if you're in Iowa where there's no legislated requirement, the gestation crate's in the mix. And you're going to do what works for you in Iowa. Right. Now, I, I think the other thing is one of the problems with the world that we have always had and continue to have, and that's that people want to tell other people what to do. Right. Like and this is quite, quite annoying. So people want to tell you to eat a veggie burger. They want to tell you to do that. And you say, I'm offended by that. Don't tell me what to do. Right? But they have. In Arizona, of all places, used to be a conservative place. They outlawed gestation crates. So they're telling their farmers how to raise their animals in a way that is counter to the farm economics. And people that have never been to a farm and they've watched a YouTube video and they think that that 0.01% of situations is the 100% of the situations. And So if everybody would just mind their own business, it would be a lot better world, of course. <laughs> it would. I, I think the other thing that is really important for the pig producer is that pig production is a local enterprise. You like to say that, I don't know about you, but people like to say we're an international market. Yeah, we are, sure. But how you raise pigs in Iowa versus South Dakota depends on the local conditions. Right. It depends how you raise pigs in Alberta is quite different than how you raise pigs in North Carolina. What you feed them is different. The Uh, constraints on the production system are different, but they're local constraints. They're not constraints related to the laws of physics, not the laws of the state of North Carolina. You know, you don't want to put a pig farm in a flood zone, right? Right. Likewise, you don't want to put a pig farm on an icy tundra on the North Pole. Right, right. But there are places that makes more sense to put pig farms. But those are the local conditions. So you have to be comfortable with your local conditions. And if your local condition is selling commodity product to a large pork processor, that's your model, that's your condition, that's fine. If your local product is a niche product that goes into uh, outdoor pigs, whatever, uncured bacon, whatever all the things are, that's a local decision. And the local requirements are the main ones that have to be met. It is time to our famous three. As an invested partner to the swine industry and the people behind it, Merck Animal Health is dedicated to supporting you and the well-being of your operation now and into the future. Working in new and different ways to help you address your challenges, all while keeping the manufacturing a priority to assure a dependable supply of vaccines and other cutting-edge technologies. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Dr. McGlone, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. 
uh, there are three questions that, uh, that I ask every guest and I wanted to ask you. The first one is uh, your favorite pig-related book. First of all, your favorite book should be my book on pig production. Have you read that? I have not. You should look it up. I'll take a look. Is that the this, one? This is, I think it's backwards, isn't it? No, I can, I can read it. Yeah, Harris on the Pig. It's called Harris on the Pig. This is 1883. A guy named Harris, Joseph Harris, who was the U.S.'s leading pig expert in 1883. Wow. And he wrote a book on how to care for the pigs, how to breed them, how to build fencing, something about social facilitation in the pig. You know what this is? This is a little pig and a big pig. Uh-huh. And the question is how to get the big pig to eat more. Uh-huh. And so... Here's the trough and the farmer. The farmer puts food out in the trough, and this big pig eats until he can't eat anymore. Then he goes and lays down. And he's got this guy in the other pen. Mm-hmm. He's called the hungry pig. And he lets the hungry pig loose in the pen. And the hungry pig goes over and starts eating. And that makes the big fat pig get up and eat some more. Wow. That's... It's, a, it's a way to make a show pig bigger and fatter. And it adds about 10% to the feed intake of the pig. I never heard about that. That's incredible. Yeah. So you should, this is pig. good reading material, Harris I, on the Pig. And it's been it. reprinted, and you can get it from Amazon now. I love it. How about a book not related to livestock? Anything that comes to mind outside of agriculture? Okay. This is a book that everybody should be listening to or reading. It's called The Great Influenza. Okay. The Great Influenza. It's about the influenza outbreak of 1918. Yeah. Spain, right? No. It no. started in Kansas. It did it? It started near Manhattan, Kansas. I've lived in Manhattan. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But it, did really? it end up in Spain? Am I getting this right? No. That was a propaganda program okay. by the U.S. military to shift the blame away from the U.S. to... Whoa. Soldiers in the war. Interesting. Yeah. The Great Influenza. It's a wonderful book about the science of vaccine development and isolation of organisms and all that kind of stuff. Right. I love it. That, that uh, We need to check it out. And then the final one is, what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those that are not? I think it's two things. One is how hard they work. And two is how smart they work. A lot of people on commercial farms work very hard. A lot of other people on commercial farms don't work very hard. So I used to go to this farm once a month as a consultant. And they paid me. And I said, well, why do you keep paying me to come back here? They said, because whenever you come back here, the productivity goes up. <laughs> I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, we don't care what you do. Just show up. Because people work uh, just, there's a tale that is like, you get this bottle of water and you put on, on, on every sow every day, uh, a little bit of water on their head and uh, you're going to see performance is going to improve. Right? And it does. Yes. Yeah. You just look and at it. And it does. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time going around to these different units, finding people asleep in the, office man that's tough 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if they worked harder, they would have had better productivity, but they weren't working hard. So, I mean, it's really about working hard and working smart. Uh, I, 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 I'm very worried about the younger generation, starting with you, uh, because the world is changing so much. And I don't think, I, how many people work in the pig industry today in the U.S., do you think? Yeah, it might be like a million people, let's say. Let's just make up a number, a million people, not counting the slaughter plants. We need to find a way to raise the same number of pigs with just 100,000 people. More automation. Yeah, we need to find it because people don't want to work in this job. It's hard to find people. Yeah, I mean, the power washing, which is day one job, at least that one is being automated, but I mean, I mean, a few years ago, I would say that a lot of this uh, smart farming or whatever, it's probably more of a buzzword. But uh, no, I think we're seeing very solid things happening right now from uh, automation, but also from a uh, softer side of things as well. I mean, the whole biosecurity compliance, a lot of things, cool things coming on the softer side of things. Yeah, I, I do think that the technology will catch up to the pig industry and make it better for the animals. Uh, I think one person... I think a machine can do a much better job checking on the welfare of animals than a person. Now, people vary. Like, you might be better at it than I am. That's the problem. The machine are all the same. Right. Dr. McGlone, it's been a joy. Thanks so much uh, for sure. all that's here today. Good luck to you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.